John, lead pastor Noel Peepcrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plan started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. We'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Specifically, we're going to talk about what it means to be uh, a family like as a church. That's one of the ways that the church is described in the New Testament. Uh, And um, so we're kind of taking a bit of a break in our Matthew series. Kind of, but not really. Because if you remember the last passage that I left off, uh, off on in Matthew 12 was this part where Jesus replies, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? He was pointing to his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. So he went on to say in verse 50, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So this is like a pretty wild concept that Jesus is presenting. This idea of his followers as members of a family. So I wanted to take a time out this morning. You know, I I did a few uh, messages in, I think, August about what kind of church are we anyways? You know, what what are some of our values? What are like the, the core things that we're holding on to? And so today it just seemed like a perfect opportunity to, uh, to talk a little bit as what do I mean when I say that we, we call ourselves a family on mission with God, okay? And so I got this nice slide. Good job, Gunner. You're on cue, my friend. Way to go back there, buddy. So yeah, what does it mean to be a family on mission with God? What does Jesus mean when he's like, no, my mother, my brother, they're not my, they're not my family. You guys who follow me, you're my family. Uh, it's a pretty wild thing to think about. But the Bible actually says a lot about what it means as a church to be a family, or what it means as believers to be part of God's family. And uh, this, this idea of being a family on mission with God, it's like part of our core identity as a church. You've heard me say it before, we're going to keep saying it, we're a family on mission with God. Um, and so anyways, like I said, it just this passage got me thinking, like, well, what does that mean? I wonder, you know, I need to make that clear. I want to uh, explain what it, what it means when I say that we're uh, a family. Um, you know, uh, Jesus wasn't the only one in the New Testament to talk about this idea of being a family as uh, the followers of God. It, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, constantly refers to the churches he's writing to as brothers and sisters. Uh, in fact, after the establishment of the church in Acts, uh, you, you may notice like in Matthew, in the Gospels, it's always uh, people, followers of Jesus are called disciples. But after the establishment of the church... Paul uses language like brothers and sisters, father, son and daughter, mother. So this is New Testament language, this idea as, of the church as a family. It, it's, it's the idea of the people who follow Jesus. So it's, and, and it's also, it's not just, you know, it's not a Jesus thing only. It's not just a Paul thing. This idea of God's people being a family is actually an Old Testament thing. If we go back to Genesis 12 we see that uh, God's chosen people were led by a guy named Abraham. And, and uh, God gives this call to Abraham. He tells him that you're going to be a father of many nations. He promises Abraham that he's going to use his family line to bring about God's redemption uh, in the world. He calls Abraham a father of many nations. That's a pretty crazy story in the Old Testament. You know, Abraham and Sarah were really old. And they were like, we're too, we're too old to have kids. And then God blesses them with a child. And, and so anyway, there's this theme throughout the Bible, not just the New Testament, but throughout the Bible 
as the people of God, as a family. And you've probably, like, you're maybe familiar with other biblical metaphors for the church. Like, for example, you've probably heard that the church is, uh, is like, described as a body. In, um, in 1 Corinthians 12, actually, Paul talks about the church being a body. And sometimes we talk that way, you know. It's like, oh, this is such a great body to be a part of, right? Well, that comes from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, also, another way, another metaphor that's used to describe the church is as a marriage. Uh, the church is called the bride of Christ. So we have body language, we have uh, marriage language, we've got family language, and even building language, like construction, like building language. So there's several metaphors in the Bible, but family's the most prominent metaphor used in the New Testament. Um, and so, I mean, you know, I, I, and I just want to say, maybe as a disclaimer to start, but obviously the idea of family, it's a bit of a metaphor. Um, you know, we as a church, we're different than family as we think about it, right? And so I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing, but what I am saying is the Bible uses familial language to, the, to refer to the people of God. So we need to kind of think about what does that mean that the Bible is so consistently using familial language, okay? Uh, Ephesians 2.19 says that, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, like foreigners. You're no longer strangers. <clears throat> You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this is a very specific language. We're, look, you guys, like you used to be strangers. You used to be aliens, foreign, not knowing one another. But in the household of God, we've been made saints and members. So I think we should really embrace this idea of family. I think we should embrace the family metaphor, okay? In fact, uh, you know, it'd be my goal that when you think of Exeter Valley Church, you think of a family. So get your mind around that. When you think of Exeter Valley Church, this is like our goal. It's our aim. I'm not saying that we've got it nailed right now. I'm not saying that this is the perfect family or the ideal family or we're doing it all right. But I think it'd be a great aim for us to embrace this New Testament ideal as being a church, as a family. So I want you to think of family when you think of Exeter Valley Church. And this is really important, you guys, this idea of being a family. Like, we're not an organization primarily. We're a family. I'm not a CEO primarily. You're not like employees. You're not customers. You're not the clientele. You're not consumers. We're members of a family. That has a, a much different feel to it, doesn't it? You know, and, and, and don't get me wrong, there's some great things that we can learn from business and administration and organization. We can learn from those domains. But I think the church makes a mistake when it gets overly administrative, overly organizational. The church, first and foremost, is a family. We're a family, you guys. So we want to embrace uh, that ethos. And, and the church as a family, like it, the idea, it, it's like it goes beyond DNA, doesn't it? Right? Because obviously when we think of family, one of the first things we think of is blood, DNA, right? So somehow what Jesus intended for us to be transcends DNA. There's a oneness and a unity that we have together that goes beyond our DNA. That's pretty wild. It's actually pretty miraculous, I think. Um, can I read a quote from Relevant Magazine? Um, I found this online. It's, it's, a, it's a really, I think, helpful quote. So here we go. It says, in short... The church that's introduced to us in Scripture is a loving household, not a business. So see, they agree with me, or I agree with them. It's a living organism. It's not a static organization. It's a corporate expression of Jesus Christ, not a religious corporation. The church is the community of the king, not a well-oiled 
hierarchical machine. It's, it's about interdependence, not independence. It's about wholeness instead of fragmentation. It's about participation instead of spectatorship. It's about connectedness instead of isolation, solidarity instead of individualism, spontaneity instead of institutionalism, relationship instead of programs, servitude instead of dominance, enrichment instead of insecurity, freedom instead of bondage, community instead of corporation, bonding instead of detachment. That's a really powerful quote. In, in a world that's like uh, become more and more and more independent, individualism reigns in our culture. The church stands against with the family ethos. So I wanted to start by saying, you know, what does it mean to be a spiritual family? And, and I'm going um, to use three words that all start with R to help uh, communicate this. But before I do that, I wanted to uh, I wanted to do something fun. We're talking about family. And so I wanted to see if you guys recognize some of these families here. So Gunnar, go to the first slide. All right, who can tell me what's the, who, what family is this? This is the Adams family, right? Can we sing the song? There we go. Okay. All right, next slide. Let's see if we can get this one. Who's this family? The Bundy family. Okay, if you know who this is, you're kicked out of the church. You're a heathen. I'm, jo I'm joking. That, that, I was not allowed to watch this growing up. Raise your hand if you weren't allowed to watch this growing up. <laughs> uh, so that's the Bundy family. What was the name of that show? Married with Children. Thank you. Okay, that was a really negative outlook on what the family's like. Next slide. Let's see another family. This was a good family. Can we all agree this is a really great family? Who's this guy right here? Steve Urkel. Yeah, Steve Urkel. This is Family Matters. It was on TGIF Friday nights. So I think this is the Winslow family, if, if, I'm, if my memory serves me correct. All right, one, one more family here. All right, the Simpson family. Uh, another show that I was not allowed to watch as a kid. So anyways, that was just for fun. Um, so let's, let's talk about, we've seen these families, right? And I think like maybe one of the, like, the, the points why I show these other families is like when family comes up, we think of a lot of different things potentially. And some of us, you know, some of those families were like great families. And some of them were like, ah, oh, I don't want my family to be like that. And so we kind of come into the idea of church being a family with some presuppositions, right? With some, with some of our own ideas based on our experience. So I want to start by talking about the implications of what does it mean to be a spiritual family? So what does this mean, this idea of being a spiritual family? Get the Simpsons off of there. Oh, I forgot the last one. Can you guys name this one? Cleavers. Yeah. What, what was their name, though? The Cleavers. Yeah, this is, this is maybe like a real family right there. All right, so go ahead, Gunnar, to the next slide. So some implications, three, um, three ways or three implications um, from Scripture of what it means to be a spiritual family. So the first one, the R word, is relationship, right? So from the very beginning, you guys, uh, the church is communal. The body of believers is a communal thing. If you look at uh, page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, we learn with the creation of Eve from the side of Adam. Have you, have you heard that story? Maybe you, you're probably familiar with that story a little bit. What's the famous phrase? God said, it's not good for man to be alone. There's like a communal need that human beings have been created with. And did you know that our God, while not needy, our God desires community, right? Our God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So even with, uh, within the Godhead, we see a community of persons, and so it should be no surprise that human beings made in the image of God are communal. Like we need each other. 
It's not just good for man to be alone. It's not good for woman to be alone. It's not good for brother to be alone or sister to be alone. We need each other. Even when we irritate each other, we need each other. We're created for community. We're created for relationship. Okay, you can't do the Christian life on your own. Hebrews 10, 25, and, you know, normally uh, I preach from one passage. Today, I got a bazillion passages. So if you want, <laughs> we got a lot of Bible coming at you today. Hebrews 10, uh, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together like this, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You guys, you can't live the Christian life alone. You weren't intended to live the Christian life alone. We need a community. God's made us that way. The second C in relationship that I want to share with you is that we've been chosen. Our relationship to God is one in which we've been chosen. Check this out. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. I love this because, you know, we've all been on that, in that situation where we're, we're, it's high school PE class or middle school recess, whatever it is, and we're picking teams. I want to tell you that God's chosen you. He picked you to be on his team. It says in Ephesians 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God's family is chosen. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think about adoption. I've come to find that some people, like, uh, have negative connotations about adoption. The idea of, you know, an ad being adopted is, like, can, can be seen as, like, a negative thing. I just had, I just had um, a, f a family that I knew, like, had, they didn't want to tell their son that he was adopted for a very long time. He was, like, in high school before he found out that he was adopted. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I, I grew up with an adopted brother. He's one year older than me. And my parents told us from the very beginning that he was adopted. Uh, and this idea of adoption, you guys, like, my parents chose him. And they actually, they actually named him Seth, which, which uh, to them meant or represented the fact that they chose him. They chose to become his parents, to bring him into their And I had a great model of just, like, he was, he's my brother. He's my brother. He's fully, legally, heart and spirit, my brother, right? And this is the, the picture of adoption. You guys, God, he didn't just get stuck with us. He didn't just get stuck with you. He chose you. In fact, he adopted you. That's powerful language. He, he adopted us to sonship. Don't get, don't get stuck on, on the sonship. Daughtership could also apply. Uh, this idea of being adopted to sonship. In Greek, I'm told that this actually means being a full legal heir. In the Roman culture, this language meant full legal heir. This is the real deal. The real deal. You're not just like a fake son. You're not just like a fake daughter, a pretend, a make-believe, a made-up sibling uh, or child, I'm sorry. You've been adopted fully, legally. See, the biblical family, it, it transcends DNA. Do you get what I'm talking about here? This idea of adoption, it transcends DNA. Bloodlines are, are great, bloodlines are powerful, but they don't tell the whole story. The biblical family transcends DNA. God has chosen you, 
He's chosen us. He's adopted us. I love that. He's a choosing God. He made his decision to be with you. It's powerful. He's not begrudging in his, his acceptance of us into his family. He didn't get stuck with us. He chose us. The third C in relationship that I wanted to present is this idea of being cohesive. You might call it oneness or unity. In Galatians 3, 26 through 29, it says that so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Notice the familial language that Paul is using here in this passage. Through faith, you are children of God. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Paul says, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Remember I talked about Abraham and the promise to Abraham. You'll be a father of many nations. So Paul's referring back to this concept and he's saying, if you're in Christ, you're part of this family that was promised to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. There's cohesion in the family of God. We're all one. This is like a powerful thing that God does. God turns many into one. Only God could do that, right? We see this in the Trinity, three persons, one Godhead, and we also see it in the church. Somehow, miraculously, though we're all individuals, together we're one corporately. Again, this is a miracle, you guys. This transcends DNA. God's family is one of the most powerful forces on the planet Earth. This faith, it makes us one. It makes us one cohesive unit shared by the common bond of Jesus Christ. The next C that, that deals with our relationship is our relationship as a church to God and to one another is covenantal. It's covenantal. Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says this. I told you lots of scripture references. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Did you hear that word? Love. This is covenantal language for the fatherly love of God towards us. God loves us, right? It's also covenantal language for our love towards God and our love towards one another. It says, verse 13, bear with each other. This is covenantal language. You don't bear with someone that you're not in covenant with. You skip town, right, when things get hard. But when you're, when you're in covenant with somebody, <clears throat> you bear with them. And together, we're in this type of covenant as believers. We bear with one another. This is like the secret sauce, you guys. This is the secret sauce of a good family. I'm telling you, like, and you don't have to raise your hands. I won't make you raise your hands. But in my house, we have to bear with one another quite often, right? We can talk about brotherly love, but I've never seen it. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But, man, putting up with one another, bearing with one another. Again, this is one of the miracles of the family of God. It's amazing. Love is covenantal language. Love binds us to Christ. And it binds us to one another. We're in a covenant with one another as a family of God. 
We're in a covenant with one another. <clears throat> this idea of like covenant through marriage, this covenantal idea, it, it's the second most prominent or metaphor for the church, right? Like I said, the bride of Christ. So it gives us this picture of the covenantal bond between Christ and the church and ourselves to one another. So because God loved us, we love each other. It says that verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we were loved by God. So as God's chosen people who've been dearly loved, we love each other. This is powerful. I'm told that this idea separated the early church uh, dramatically from the culture that they lived in. This idea of being committed to one another, forgiving one another, totally foreign to the ancient world. This is what makes us unique. We bear all. <clears throat> we love each other. We're in a covenantal relationship. The next C in relationship, one more C in relationship. I got a lot of alliteration going on today. One more C in relationship, Acts chapter 2, it says they devoted themselves. Oh, I'm sorry. The C, I should tell you that first, is commissioned. Okay, and it's really easy to make a C figure with my hand for extra oomph. The R is harder. I don't know how to make an R with my hand, but the C I can make. Commissioned, so Acts 2, they devoted themselves, the early church, the, the, uh, the disciples, the brothers and sisters. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's what we're doing right here to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Can you imagine church every day? They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it says the very end, what happened? And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Look, you guys, uh, our relationships are one of commission. Remember, the great commission is to go and make disciples of all nations. Our, uh, our relationships have a purpose. We've been commissioned. Uh, it says that the early church added to their number daily those who are being saved. We want to be a family. Not, not like the type of family, though, that only faces in. I've said this before. We want to be an outward-facing circle, right? We want to be in a circle of community and relationship, but we want to be about more than just ourselves. We want to look outward to the world around us so that we can go and make disciples of all nations. So the last C, relationally, we've been commissioned. All right, so roles. There are roles in this family. Did you know that every family has roles, right? You've got a mommy and a daddy, You've got brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. You may even have an aunt or an uncle, though the Bible doesn't talk quite as much about aunts and uncles. Grandma, grandpa, right? There's roles in a family, okay? And so we see this in Scripture as well. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 talks about the idea of uh, the body of believers. I'm, I said it, the body of believers being a body. You've, you've probably or maybe you're familiar with this passage. I'm not sure. I shouldn't say that you, you are for sure, but... It says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the family of God is like a body, right? That uh, it says, it, let me just read it instead of paraphrasing it. It's kind of long, but bear with me. It says it better than I. Verse 12, so 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, right? We were waving around some of those parts today with the Father Abraham song. But all its many parts form one body. 
right? Remember, I, I talked about this idea. Multiple things come together to form one thing uh, in God's family. So this is how it is with Christ, Paul says. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would, for that reason, stop being part of the body, right? The foot doesn't just get to decide that I'm not part of the body anymore. It's still a part of the body, isn't it? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, well, then I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that'd be crazy. Where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Long story short, Paul says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, Paul says. And each one of you is part of it. You're all part of the body of Christ. And this is the thing that I want to say to you, you guys. We all have roles, and no role is unimportant. This is why I highlighted Brittany, who you've never seen, clean this building, right? She never comes up here and talks to you. One of the ways that she's a part of this body, she cleans the building. I talked about you while you were gone, Brittany. <laughs> and there's other ways, right? Like Jeremy, back there with the sound. You would have never known that if I hadn't said something about it. But that's a part. That's important. There was eight guys that came down here yesterday morning to be a part of the body of Christ. Listen, here's the thing. You're all a part. You're all important. Just because you're not a foot doesn't mean that you don't have a role. Just because you're an ear, not an eye, doesn't mean you don't have a part to play. We're all part of God's body. And this is how it is in the family. Every role, whether you're a little baby brother or the old grandpa of the family, you have an important role. Our roles are different, but they're no less important. Does that make sense, you guys? Imagine living life without an ear. Imagine living life without a foot. You notice really quickly, if you've ever been injured, how important that body part that you never thought about really, really is, right? We've all heard the story about what happens if you lose your pinky toe or whatever, and you can't walk, you know? You never thought about that pinky toe until you heard it or you lost it. Everybody's role in the body is important. Different roles equal value. That's God's family. Different roles equal value. Have you considered, have you stopped to consider how important you are in this family? Or have you just minimized your part in this family? Everyone in this family has an important role, just like the analogy here we see from Paul uh, with the body. <clears throat> so we have roles, right? Obviously, uh, you know, some of us are more like brothers, some more like sisters, some more like children, some infants, some older in age. The Bible even talks about the concept of elders or overseers in the church. So currently, that's me. That's like a weird concept. I'm like some of your father. I was like thinking, who's your daddy? I was thinking of saying that. That's not a good thing to say, so I'm not going to say it. But it's like, again, one of the miracles of the family of God, right? <laughs> that, 
that he would place me in even that kind of role. But the Bible talks about this type of language even. So there's different roles in our family. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 says this about like uh, fathership even in the church. 4, 14 through 16. I'm writing this not to shame you but to warn you as my dear children. This is Paul's heart. As a leader of the church, he calls his church his dear children. I was praying this morning like that I would be the kind of father that looks at you as my dear children in the faith. I know it feels a little bit weird, doesn't it? Does that feel weird? It feels kind of weird to me. I'm like stepping into that. I'm wanting, but I want to be like a good father. Not like an overloading father. Not one that's overly harsh. Not one that's absent. But one that cares for you as children. Not that I'm calling you children. That even feels weird too. It says in verse 15, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father. That's Paul talking. Through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul's concept was, to Im- he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we see different roles in the family of God. Roles that are different, unique, but none more or less important than the other. The last R is uh, responsibilities. In every good family, there's responsibilities. Isn't that right, Asher? What do we call them? Chores, right? Everyone, my kids love their responsibilities. <laughs> they love their responsibilities. No, but in all families, we have responsibilities, don't we? If everyone's going to play a part, then everyone's got to have a role, you know? So I got a few different ideas about these different responsibilities. I want to talk about the first responsibility that we all have in the church. It starts with an S. These three all start with an S because I'm like that. Uh, The first one is sharing, service, and sacrifice. They're all kind of the same. Sharing, service, and sacrifice. Acts 4, 32 through 35, it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. This is radical. (laughs) Absolutely radical. Early church members, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Early church type of family, no needy persons among them. It says from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money to the apostles from the sales, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Part of our responsibility as members of this family is to share, is to serve, and to sacrifice, right? And it's not just about your money. It's not just about your possessions. What is it that God would invite you to share with our body? Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's a resource that you have. Your time, your energy, your prayers, What can we share with one another? This is part of what it means to be a family. We all have chores, you know, and we always, we we try to teach our kids. This is like, you could pray for a miracle here, but we try to teach them to joyfully do their chores, you know, because God's blessed them with a front lawn to mow and a dog to clean up after and dishes to wash and clothes. You get clothes, so you got to do laundry, you know. So we try to teach them to do these things with great joy. It doesn't always work super well, as you can imagine, but, but this is the deal. We have responsibilities because we've been given, because we have a place, we have responsibilities. And I'm here to tell you, it can be our joy to serve. 
It can be our joy to give back, to sacrifice, to share. What do you have that you could share? What do you have that you could share? There's a million different ways that we could share, that we could sacrifice, that we could serve one another. This is part of what it means to be the family of God. We have, we have some responsibilities. Uh, I want to talk about two other types of responsibility. The first one is shepherding. I have the responsibility to act as a shepherd in this family. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, he's speaking right here to the elders, the leaders of the church. It says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, uh, as a fellow, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not forcing people to follow you, not being harsh with people, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I have a role, I have a responsibility to shepherd you. The second part of that, 1 Peter 5, 5, the very next verse says this, likewise, you who are younger, it says to be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there's this, like even in the family of God, there's like this structure. There's fathers and there's children in the family of God. There's shepherds and there's those who are to submit to good leaders, to godly leaders. And I just want to say a couple things about spiritual leadership, you know, because, like, I don't want to be a domineering leader. I don't want to be that guy for sure, right? And I just want to invite you, look, you guys, spiritual leadership is always, it cannot be forced upon you. Any effort to, like, force you to do something or coerce you to do something, it's not a great example of spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership, it's always received. It's even like this with Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. You get the opportunity to receive Christ's lordship. Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. Not one time did he force anybody to follow him. So this idea of submission, it's like, it's your choice. But here's the thing that you do get. If you choose to submit your life to Jesus, what you get is the good shepherd, right? You get him as Lord. If you choose to submit your life to him, to give it all up, you get him as your Lord and as your Savior, right? And as a family, when we submit ourselves to spiritual fathers, you know what you get? You get a father. You get a shepherd. <clears throat> so this idea, it's a trip for me, all right? Young, like new pastor, not that young, but new to being a pastor. This idea of being your shepherd, is, it's a really powerful concept. I want you to have a shepherd. That's what I would say to you. I want you to have a shepherd. <clears throat> All right, next section, moving on here. So that's our roles. So we had responsibilities. We had roles. We had something else that started with R. I can't, I can't remember right now. Relationships. Thank you. You guys are paying attention. Oh, it's right up there on the slide. That's why I make slides. <laughs> I knew that would be helpful. I knew that would be helpful this morning. All right, cool. So imperative. So the implications, what this all means, I, I laid those out with three R's. So what is this? So what do we do? Like, how are we going to do this, all right? This is where it kind of gets fun, all right? Because I want to just lay out 
a vision for how we could be as a family. You guys good with that? Like what, are, like, what kind of family do we want to be like? Have you ever done this with your own families? Like, how would we want to describe ourselves? You know, sometimes I see people that have, like, paintings about, like, uh, laughing, live, laugh, love, or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. So, the, like, what kind of family do we want to be, you know? So I want to invite you into a vision for this family, all right? And, and you could have input, too. So, like, I'm throwing some darts at the wall here. Um, but hopefully, like, you'll be like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Let's be that kind of family. So I got five Fs here, okay? Um, so, I know, this is like, they came like so easily this morning, uh, or last night, whenever, this week, this, man, the same letters were just really flowing, so I felt like the spirit was at work. All right, so number one, number one type of family we want to be, we want to be a fun family. We want to be fun, you guys. That's why we sing a silly song like Father Abraham. And sometimes, like, you know, as we get older, we like bristle at the idea of being silly and having fun. So we need the kids to show us how to be fun and have fun, right? But we want to be fun, you guys. We want to be expressive. We want to be demonstrative. Think about how you act at the football game. Like, let's act more like that. Think about how you act at your high school dance or whatever it is, wherever you got silly. Maybe it was the wedding. I don't know. Think about how you act when you're with your five closest friends. Let's have fun. Let's be expressive. Let's be demonstrative. We're not wearing suits and ties anymore. We can relax a little bit, right? We can have some fun together. We want to be full of life. We want to be funny. I made some jokes today. You guys laughed. It's like really successful morning for me, right? We want to be full of life. We want to, we want to have vitality. Uh, the, the spiritual concept that we call fun is joy. Joy is a spiritual concept. Fun you don't see fun in the Bible, like, at all, but joy you see all over the Bible. Joy you see all over the Bible. It says in Acts 2.26, one of the passages that I read about the early church, you know the church that was, like, sharing all its possessions? <laughs> that early church, it says that they did it all with glad and sincere hearts. They had fun as they shared everything they had. They had joy together. It's a joy to be in the family of God. It's really, really, really fun. It's really fun. I always tell the teams that I coach, you know, if, if you can have fun when you're running wind sprints, you'll never live a dull day in the, your entire life, right? They had fun sharing. They're like, what can we give away? All our possessions. Let's go sell some land with glad and sincere hearts. This is the way that they live. They had so much fun. Look, you guys, we worship the God of the feast, the God who turned water into wine, we want to be a people marked with joy. Let's not be the frozen chosen, folks. Let's be a people marked with joy. Let's have fun together. Let's laugh. Let's play. Let's be happy in God. Who's in for this vision of what it means to be a family? Can we be the fun family? Can we be the fun family? I might need a little bit of help because I get really serious sometimes. The second thing is we want to be full of faith. We want to be full of faith, and if you're looking at the screen, you see I kind of did a little play on the words because the next one is faithful, but I think they mean two different things. We want to be a people full of faith, a family of worshipers. We want to embrace risk together. Like, we don't want to be afraid to fail. <clears throat> the only thing that we should be afraid of is, is failing to live with faith. Let's embrace risk together. Let's step out on a limb together because as it says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. What are you hoping for? What are you longing for? 
What have you been praying for day after day after day, month after month, year after year? Let's keep going. Let's step out on a limb and see if God shows up. We want to be full of faith. In this faith, we're mission-minded. When we live with faith, we're mission-minded. What could God do in our community? We're full of faith in a God who wants to change people's lives. We've seen him do it in the Gospels. We're super mission-minded when we're full of faith. We follow God with uh, creative zeal. Like, let's be a pioneering church. Like, look what we did here. We turned a bar into a church, you know. This is like a pioneering spirit. This is part of, you know, this is one of the ways that we live full of faith. We're new. We got no traditions. We could start new traditions of our own, you guys. Like, how do we want to do it? Let's go do it. Let's be like, you know, let, let's be creative. Let's be pioneering. Let's be forward-looking. Let's not say to ourselves, well, this is how it's always been done. If you do church, you got to do it this way. Let, let, like, let's literally become, like Paul said, he'll become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some. What's our version of that? What is God calling us to become so that we might see someone come through the door of salvation? Next up, we're going to be full of faith, but we're also going to be faithful. Here's what I mean by faithful. We'll be marked by our obedience. We'll be a church marked by our obedience, our faithfulness to God's call in our lives. We're going to be full of faith for him to move, but we're going to be faithful to be obedient to the word of God. Genesis 15 and, and Romans 4, they both say the same thing about Abraham. It says that Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith made him righteous. He believed God. This is what it means to live a faithful life. It's to believe God. To follow him where he calls us to go. Let's be faithful to our core values. Word, spirit, mission. Let's persist in these things for a really, really, really long time. Just because we're new doesn't mean we're short-lived. Get ready to go the long haul. Uh, the pastor, Eugene Peterson, he says that the goal of the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. We call it grinding on Instagram, right? It's the grind, hashtag grind, right? Day after day. It doesn't have to be a grind. It can be done with joy. But what happens if we faithfully follow Jesus one day after the next day, after the next day, after the next day? What would happen to our communities? What would happen to our biological families? What would happen to your workplace if you lived in obedience one day after the next day after the next day? A long obedience in the same direction. Let's be a faithful church. We're not in it for the short run, people. We're in it for the long haul. Imagine what God could do with us. Just imagine what God could do with us. The, uh, the fourth F is friendly. Yes, of course, we want to be a friendly church. Can we all agree? We, we want to be a friendly church. What does it mean to be a friendly church? All kinds of things. It means all kinds of things to be a friendly church. But Romans 12.10 says this. One way it means to be friendly is to honor one another above yourselves. To give each other, the next person, the person next to you, more honor than you give to yourself. That's one way we can be friendly. Also being affectionate with one another in appropriate ways. Romans 16.16 says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Please don't do that. That is not appropriate. All right. I got an old mustached friend at Radiant Church who tries to give me a kiss on the cheek every time I see him. It's like, dude, I don't know what's wrong with you. Stop, stop doing that. But how about like a holy hug, right? I, I'm a toucher. Maybe you figured this out. Like I, I like physical contact. So I hug you probably when I see you most of the time. 
All right? Hopefully that's appropriate. Hopefully that feels appropriate to you. But let's be affectionate. Like, families are affectionate. My mom's brother is, like, 70 years old. He never married. He's single. Very quiet and shy. He, he loves to hang out with our family. And one of the things that he always says is, you guys are so affectionate with one another. Like, I want to hug in this family. I want to be physically affectionate. I want to, like, externally demonstrate the love that we have for one another. If you don't like that, just tell me. It's cool. I won't give you a hug. Also, we want to be welcoming for the outsider, you guys. Like, hey, you all have my permission to greet somebody you don't recognize and say, hey, my name is, I'm glad that you're here. You all have my permission to do that. I don't care if this is your second week with us. You have permission to greet somebody else. We can all be friendly to the outsider. Um, we can all affirm one another's equal importance. Remember I said, the foot, it's got a really important role, just like the ear. We'd miss them both if they were gone. And we need to be good at affirming one another's roles. That's one of the reasons I, I said, Brittany, great job. That's one of the reasons I said, Jeremy, great job. We want to be the kind of church. Don't you like being told, like, hey, I noticed what you did? Who doesn't like that? I've yet to find the person that does not like to be told. And, and we have different ways. Some people don't like it in public. I get that. Maybe I really embarrassed Brittany. I should have asked. Sorry, Brittany. Right? But let's be the kind of church that affirms one another's equal importance. Next up, what does it mean to be friendly? Looking to bear one another's burdens. Look, Galatians 6.2 6, tells us to carry each other's burdens. Who would like a friend to help them carry life's burdens? Let's be the kind of church that carries one another's burdens. Sometimes it's super simple. We bring meals when someone's sick and in the hospital. Sometimes we help with whatever service that we can offer. Maybe we have a skill set that's helpful. You can get super creative, people. Get super creative in carrying each other's burdens. And then last but not least, to be friendly is to have a culture of accountability, right? This goes two ways. The Bible says in James 5, confess your sins one to another. So when we confess our sins, we receive accountability, right? And then sometimes we need a good friend to say, hey, I noticed this that's going on in your life. You know, what's up with that? Is that like how you want to live or would you like to redirect in that area, right? So accountability is part of being a friendly church. We confess our sins to one another, but we also every now and again in really like honoring ways are willing to correct one another in love. Last but not least, the last F, this is how we're going to make it the long haul, you guys. Colossians 3.13 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as if the Lord forgave you. We will not make it as a family if we cannot be forbearing with one another. I guarantee you I will uh, let you down. I guarantee you I will say something I shouldn't say at some point. I will do something I shouldn't do at some point. I'm going to have to come to you for forgiveness. I'm going to have to apologize. And you're probably going to be able to say the same thing about somebody else in this church at some point. Maybe even now. You're thinking of something that somebody else did that you didn't like. We will not make it for the long haul if we don't learn to forgive one another. If we don't live to, to bear with each other and forgive. In this family, look, in this family, we don't get easily offended. In this family, we don't get easily offended with one another. Look, we don't fight with one another, we fight for one another. We don't fight with one another, we fight for one another. We pursue reconciliation, knowing that our battle is typically not really person to person. It's normally spiritual underneath the surface, right? As a new church trying to see God's kingdom extended in our community, do you think Satan is super happy to see us go on doing our thing? No. 
not happy at all. He is triggered, upset, will do anything to get us to fight against ourselves. We've got to pursue reconciliation. And then lastly, we've got to stay in the game, you guys. Stay in the game. Something's going to happen at some point. You're going to feel like bolting. And you're going to have to stay in the game. You're going to have to be long-suffering with each other. You're going to have to forgive. You're going to have to bear with each other. Now, I'm not saying we should excuse abuse or inappropriate behavior. If that happens, you, you should probably leave, right? But I'm saying, you know what I'm talking about. There's a level of forgiveness that we need to grant to one another, right? I'm not talking about permitting abusive behavior. I'm talking about learning to forgive as the Lord forgave us. That's my cue right there to wrap up the sermon. <clears throat> hey, I, I am, like, to the end of this sermon. The, uh, and, and I just want to say, like, I know that based on our, our histories, like, family can be a tough pill to swallow, right? Not everyone has a positive experience with their earthly family. Um, and so I get it. We, like, God, oh, I like this church. Don't start calling it a family. I don't want that, right? But the, the fact of the matter is that the Bible calls the church a family. He calls uh, the church the family of God. The Bible uses familial language all over the place to describe how we're to coexist together and how we're to operate in the world. Look, the, the world needs more good families, you guys. I can tell you as a teacher in the public schools, the number one thing that's messed up or wrong or broken in our world is the family. When the family gets off track, everything gets off track. The world needs good families. Let's be the kind of family that we can offer to the world. Let's be the kind of family that transcends DNA that brings people in, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, broken, healed, rich, poor, successful, not successful, on the street, in Park Place. I don't know. You trying to say, let's be the kind of church that brings people into the family. And I, I just want to like creatively pose this question and leave you with it. Like, what if we, I, I know you've got your prior ideas about what family is. I know you've got your own personal history. But what if we created a new family? I know you even have experience with other churches, right? You, I got hurt in this church. This happened to me in that church. What if we created a new kind of family? What if we were, like, really resilient? What if we, like, really plowed into this idea of being a family on mission with God together? We have an opportunity to pioneer something new, something fresh. Like, let's do it. Let's, let's create the kind of family the Bible talks about. And, and, and lastly, I just want to say, hey, like if you're new this morning, you've been with us for only a short time, or you don't quite feel like a part of this family yet, I just want to say, like, you're home. There's room for you here. There's space. Like, we want you here. You belong here. This family is for you. If you're asking yourself that question, I'm here to tell you this family is for you. We want you. We need you. We'd love to have you be a part of our family.